0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how would our state respond if we were hit by wildfires as severe as those in California? Meet a pair of artists who are visiting the Museum of Contemporary Art to share their 100-year plan. Find out how you can help hummingbirds survive the peak summer heat. And Tucson residents share small stories of kindness in action. That's all next on Arizona Spotlight. Anyone who's been following national news knows about the wildfires in California, the thousands of acres that have been burned, the towns that have been evacuated, and the many lives lost. And unfortunately, those totals keep going up. Joining me right now is Zach Ziegler, who reports on the wildfire situation in Arizona for Arizona Public Media. And I just wanted to take a moment to talk to Zach about our own fire preparedness and if a situation as vast as the one that's striking California were to occur here, how would our state fare? Thanks. Thanks for being here, Zach.
1: Thanks for having me, Mark.
0: So first of all, uh, do we have any idea what the current situation in California is?
1: The current situation is these fires are starting to get controlled. Uh, They've been burning for weeks on end now, but we're starting to see the containment percentages go up. Now, the downside is... If strong wind gusts hit, then we're going to get to a situation where they will jump fire line. That's how you establish containment on a fire. You cut lines around it, clear any fuels from the area. If a good wind gust happens, a fire can jump a fire line, and now all of a sudden it's back out of control again.
0: Well, how have experts rated this year for wildfires in Arizona?
1: It's been a pretty mild season, particularly here in southern Arizona. My personal uh, way of measuring these things is I have not donned my fire gear yet. Uh, So I haven't been out in the field reporting. It's been a remarkably mild year down here. In northern Arizona, in eastern Arizona, the, the really forested parts of the state, there has been a notable amount of fire. We've seen some evacuations, but overall... Not as uh, as big as it can be, and that leads to what we've seen where a lot of our firefighters are going to California to lend a hand.
0: It presents a kind of an inverse uh, situation. You find the lack of fires to be comforting, yet at the same time, the potential for those fires is growing.
1: That reminds me of something that Donald Falk, a U of A professor at the School of Natural Resources and the Environment, who studies wildfire, uh, has told me fires basically need three things— oxygen fuels and an ignition source when you
2: don't have a fire the fuels don't simply go away they persist some parts of them decompose from year to the next but a lot of that fuel accumulates and so you do start to throw a lot more fuel onto the landscape and it's really then waiting for those hot dry windy conditions and a source of ignition So we know the fuels are out there,
0: we know the oxygen's out there, and right now we're finally getting the lightning and the monsoon action that people enjoy seeing, but boy, it's got repercussions out there.
1: Yes, we'll often see fires when the lightning shows up, but the nice thing is these storms, the monsoon, if it's wet, will help at least minimize uh, the fuels. It'll dampen them, it'll make it hard for the fire to burn. Uh, That's part of what we've seen quite often, especially last year, Some of the biggest problems we had were human-caused fires, uh, especially in the area around Patagonia last year. These dry grasslands where fires just start and they burn. By luck and by honestly hard work by fire crews when there are small fires, they're getting them under control before they start measuring into the hundreds or the thousands of acres.
0: Well, going back to California for a moment, you mentioned that many Arizona firefighters have been going out there to participate in the in the fight. Um, to what extent were the state of California's firefighting resources tested this year, and was there federal help to make up the difference?
1: There's always federal help. There's always statewide help. Someone that I've talked to is Senoida Elgin Fire District Chief Joe DeWolf. Uh, when I talked to him last year about the fires down there, uh, he gave me an assessment that quite honestly, surprised me a little.
2: There's no fire
1: department, whether it's a federal or or local jurisdiction, that has enough manpower apparatus to really protect their area. So we all go help each other.
0: And in that spirit, there's been news of international help uh, for California's wildfires.
1: Yeah, you've heard about firefighters coming from New Zealand, and uh, that reminds me of a conversation I had with uh, now the former Mount Lemmon Fire District Chief Randy Ogden back in 2016. He spent time in Israel helping with fires over there. Uh, wildfires are an international issue, and firefighters are a brotherhood that will go anywhere in the world, it seems, to help each other when the fires get bad.
0: Have there been any changes in Arizona's attitude about preparing for fires, maybe even in light of what's happening in California? Do you see changes on the horizon or more resources being allocated?
1: Well, one thing that I will say is Arizona has been, and the Southwest has been a place that has been a little ahead of the curve nationally for some years now. The idea of prescribed fires, the idea of managed fire when there's a natural start, these are things that have come out and been tested in this area. Uh, It reminds me of fire historian and ASU professor Stephen Pine, who in his book, The Southwest, a fire survey, said the Southwest is designed to burn. This was the area where people first realized if you remove fire from the environment, you're going to basically just cause conditions to get catastrophic when it returns itself. The way that the natural order was here for years is this loose debris, these dropped pine needles, these uh, perennial and annual plants, they get burned out and that restores the soil. You get these low level fires that move through an area, uh, take care of the smaller vegetation and make the soil rich enough that things can grow again. So there was a a realization here that that's the natural way of life, and there's been an effort to try and restore that balance to the area.
0: It's another aspect of the ecology of the Southwest that might defy logic, but it's the way
1: nature works. That it is. uh, When you don't have enough moisture to help push for decomposition, you got to get rid of the dead and down plants some way, and that way here is fire.
0: Thank you for your time, Zach. Our listeners can keep up with all of your reporting at news.azpm.org.
3: Welcome to the world of eternal anxiety, notoriety, piety, invasion of your privacy.
4: Free Wi-Fi is my life, style like got them bars, style like I don't pay for what
0: you make me use like every day. If you're experiencing anxiety about technology and the future, you are not alone. My next guests are here to suggest an antidote of sorts based on a mixture of performance and digital art. Bailey Hakawa and Scotty Wagner form a collaborative team called Emotional.Store They're based in Los Angeles, but they're visiting Tucson to present their 100-year plan at the Museum of Contemporary Art. I started by asking Scotty and Bailey to tell me how working on this project has shaped their thoughts about where technology is leading us in the next 100 years.
4: Not to be a doomsday preacher, but I'd say the overarching thought impact is thinking about 100 years from now when automation has completely taken over and not even 100 years from now even more closer to like 10 years from now there is a impending tech revolution happening that has the potential to displace impending i would say a tech a- revolution happening right happening. now yeah. it's
3: yeah. happening right now and Industrial we're not preparing revolution for it 2. 0.
4: and <laughs> the current like administration particularly but culturally that we are not preparing for it and that technology and the ways that we currently use it, in fact, pacifies us in such a way that, in fact, it in- is inhibiting our preparation for the, something like what happened during the Industrial Revolution, but even much more extreme.
3: Yeah, that the very medium that will take us to the future is the thing that inhibits us from having a really clear, direct conversation about how we want to interact with that future.
0: And even if you and I right now, were having a clear and direct conversation, (laughs) our phones could distract us at any minute.
3: I'm thinking about my phone right now. (laughs) They (laughs) always
4: are, yeah. The telepresence, the presence of the phone. And this project started with that idea of, oh, these two characters who have an idealized digital realm, which is kind of the constant place right now where someone just says, you know what, screw it, I'm going there. Like, I'm not going to deal with this this physical real life and not real life. There's no more distinction between the two because what we noticed when we were first getting excited about this project is that, like, everything in social media is an advertisement for your life. So there's no more distinction between a real moment because the knowledge that you can then put that into the
0: virtual world makes this tangible environment all potential digital material. But one downside I could see of that, Scotty, is that without the organic machine, without the wetware, how does the software maintain itself? I mean, it's it's a tool for us, right?
3: And I think this is what our show feeds on and what our collaboration is named after, which is this idea of emotional dot store, the combination of commodification and our deepest desires and emotion, which is also what capitalism and advertising is built on, going and targeting those emotions that help us buy things and keep us engaged and keep us connected to the software that you're talking about.
0: Yeah, and something that I found comforting about the name Emotional.store was the idea that I could purchase a new emotional set, that I didn't have to deal with the one that I organically have. Yeah. I could opt up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Opt up or down whatever you feel like yeah hey yeah (laughs) how do you go about illustrating some of this on stage what are the primary elements that make up the performance for the 100 year plan
4: we create an environment where we are what's behind the screen we have a full set with a very op art kind of illusory black and white design that bailey came up with And then we involve green screening to sort of puncture that set with multiple cameras so that it creates a lot of depth within it and then make a composite image with webcam software and project that on a big screen that is between us and the audience.
3: Yeah, for all the people who don't know Media Talk, I think that the main idea is that there is a screen between us and the audience. And though this is a live performance and the audience can feel that it is live, we are mediated through a very large screen.
0: So when you'll be taking the stage uh, in front of your installation, becoming a living part of it on the 11th and the 18th, two Saturday night performances, who exactly are you going to be?
4: It's a version of ourselves that has really given way to the ways that we think the combination of personal life and commodification of personal life have merged into one. And that's what Bailey had mentioned earlier about commercials and advertising trying to merge with our emotional life they're they're trying to be one thing and we feel like that force that energy is so strong in our culture and going further in that direction the characters we play a little bit the dam has broken and they've given in do you have a target audience our target audience is broad I think (laughs) To me, it seems broad. I
3: have specific words about that, though. Okay. Because for this project, we took out a Facebook ad, our first Facebook ad. Oh, yeah. Where we had to choose our target audience. Literally, you choose all of the custom demographics.
0: So you like check off boxes. Check and... off the boxes. Okay, so what kind of boxes did you check and what kind did you not?
3: <laughs> our audience are art lovers, theater lovers, performance experimental lovers, music, cultural events.
0: So not so much fishing or uh, (laughs) (laughs) off-roading.
3: I think there can be an overlap, but I do (laughs) think that our work is really targeting a kind of specific cultural movement and is a meta conversation about our cultural direction.
0: Yeah, because there's a lot in your work that's kind of a reaction to the anxieties and the pressures of living in this technological world, but it's really done with humor. I think that's the target audience. Yeah,
4: which that's why I say it's broad because mm. it's so related to something so many of us use. And I, I feel like to me, that's my goal as an artist. That was a goal with our last project, which was to make something that anyone who's ever either raised a child or considered raising a child or used considered using any kind of technology, including a book to make child raising easier, could relate to.
3: That is why we started collaborating in the first place, which is to make work that can be enjoyed by the masses on some level, not just an art crowd, not just a theater crowd. We really are interested in this space in between that feels accessible.
4: It's a good time, a good time to, to be alive. Stop, stop. because you need so much stuff. You need so much stuff to survive.
0: Bailey Hakawa and Scotty Wagner's installation 100-Year Plan includes two performances, Saturday, August 11th, and Saturday, August 18th, both at 8 p.m., at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Tucson.
1: Walk around,
2: yeah.
5: Yeah. It's a
0: good... One national list that Arizona stays near the top of is for the most species of hummingbird. The Tucson Audubon Society says as many as 13 different varieties call this region home. Although this time of year presents special dangers for these tiny birds, there's a way that any Tucson resident can help, as Nancy Montoya will tell us.
6: We're talking with Jenny McFarlane, who works at the Tucson Audubon Society, and today we're talking about hummingbirds. I love hummingbirds, but Jenny, they seem so fragile. Are they really as fragile as they appear? In many senses, absolutely not. Some species of hummingbirds go on long, epic migrations, and anyone who's had a hummingbird feeder or hummingbird flowers in their garden has seen hummingbirds battle each other for those nectar resources. So they're quite tough little birds, But they're also pretty delicate in some ways, especially right now with our extreme summer heat temperatures. Uh, That can create a lot of challenges for people and wildlife. Can hummingbirds overheat? Can the heat actually kill them? Yeah, when temperatures get high enough, uh, it can be quite dangerous for all wildlife and very much for hummingbirds. They generate a lot of heat themselves in their own bodies with their rapid wing movements and then ambient really high temperatures can be quite dangerous for them. It's absolutely the best thing to do is to just make your own nectar using one part of white table sugar to four parts of clean water. Just mix that up and then put it in the feeder and change that frequently. That's far better, less expensive than doing uh, the store-bought nectar and it's much better for them and change that very frequently because it can spoil very quickly with the heat. I would suggest every uh, one or two days. What about having additional water uh, out for the hummingbirds other than the feeders themselves? I would highly recommend that this time when it's very, very hot to make sure that there's fresh, clean water in addition to the nectar available for hummingbirds. So either like a hummingbird feeder full of clean, fresh water or a fountain or some sort of fresh water source. And the habitat for a hummingbird, what's the ideal habitat for them? Well, it depends. Southeast Arizona is excellent for hummingbirds. We have Uh, More species than anywhere else in the United States, up to 13 most years, which is an incredibly high number. Many parts of the country just have one species of hummingbird, maybe two. We're very rich in hummingbird life. And some of those species like the mountains near Tucson or the deserts near Tucson, but many species do quite well right in urban Tucson. They do well in your yard. So planting some native Uh, Hummingbird plants such as uh, salvias and chuparosas can make your yard into hummingbird habitat. Does color really matter? I mean, I've seen the artificial feeders are all so colorful. Does color attract them? It absolutely does. They're uh, cued in to look for flowers that produce nectar. So they are very much color oriented in that way. So they'll go for red, but also yellow, but they really like red. Well, any other tips for hummingbird lovers out there before we say goodbye? It doesn't take a lot in your yard to make it into some really nice hummingbird habitat. Just a few native nectar-producing plants and a feeder that you keep clean and change often will bring hummingbirds right into your yard. Well, they're powerful and full of personality. Thank you so much, Jenny, for joining us. You're very welcome.
0: Nancy Montoya spoke with Jenny McFarland, a conservation biologist for the Tucson Audubon Society. are random acts of kindness on the endangered list opinions on the topic vary but when asked most people have a story to tell last november i visited the flowing wells library shortly before it closed for renovations to talk with people about witnessing or being part of acts of kindness in this community
5: well my name is elizabeth and one act of kindness we recently had was my daughter's birthday her seventh birthday and it was wonderful because we made a delicious strawberry cake with chocolate frosting and lots of colored sprinkles all over it and she picked out the candle it was a rainbow number seven uh, we decorated the place with you know cheapo cray paper and balloons one dollar balloon from the family dollar but um that's what we had for an act of kindness the whole family came and everybody brought a little gift, and it was just great. And we had the cheap pizza, $5 pizza, <laughs> to help the dinner. Sure. And that was it. Mm-hmm. My name's Kathleen. When I first moved here five years ago from Florida, I was homeless with my kids. I had two kids at the time and my husband, and we slept on a shack floor. And then we moved from my mother-in-law's floor to my sister-in-law's floor, and she already had four kids and herself. So we're sleeping on their floor, and I'm a veteran. So I contacted the Red Cross, and they helped us to get an apartment, and they gave us beds for the kids. So that was an act of kindness that I was super grateful for because I probably would have been homeless for longer, or like anything can happen to us. Did that help you get back on your feet to get that boost from the Red Cross? Yes.
0: I would never know that you had that experience.
5: Yeah. I never want to be homeless again. It was terrible. <laughs> it was really, really bad.
0: Yeah. Well, and also I want to say thank you for your service.
2: Oh, uh, my name's Charles. Can you tell us something about, like, how long you've been in Tucson, or? What I've been do? in Tucson my whole life. About four days ago, right outside this very library, there's a young boy, apparently suspended from school or something, and uh, I was just sitting here waiting for the library to open so I could do job searches. And this this guy that's around here, he doesn't have a place to live. He's just kind of on the streets. Rode up on a bicycle like me waiting for the library to open. And just walked up to this kid gave him information on a, an at-home school program online came in the library when it opened helped him register for it uh, give him all the information. You pulled out his free phone and made the contacts, set him up with the teachers and then went outside and brought his bicycle in and gave the kid his bicycle, gave him a chain to lock it up on and then just left. The kids like maybe 13 years old. How did it make you feel to see that? Well, it's not something I see every day. I see a, I see a lot of negativity in this world, and that, that's just an amazing thing. The guy himself has almost nothing but what's on his back and just went out of his way to help a kid. So, it's definitely uplifting.
7: My name is Courtney. I'm originally from New Jersey. I've been out here for about three years. Um, and It's very different than back east.
0: (laughs) Tell me about an act of kindness that you've seen or been a part of. Uh,
7: Maybe about two weeks ago, I was leaving the Circle K gas station and a lady's car stalled in the middle of the road. And um, I was looking and I didn't see anybody stopping and she was trying to push the car herself. So I went out there with the other woman and helped her push her car all the way out of the intersection, all the way into the gas station. And um, finally, a, a gentleman in a car stopped to finish helping, but I didn't even think about the fact that I was wearing flip-flops or the fact that I'm a girl and I'm not that strong. Um, I went out and helped her push her car into the gas station. Um, she would have been stuck in the middle without that, so...
0: And how did it make you feel to help? I
7: was... It, it felt good. I believe in um, doing good deeds for people, you know, for no reason, Um God tells us that we're supposed to help others, so that's what I do, and um, I can't always, but what I can, I do.
5: I am Mida and I am a caregiver, so this is the best job to uh, show kindness to other people. So we have a neighbor, um, a lady, she's a elderly, very sick, and doesn't have daughters, so We're always looking for her and helping with doctor's appointment rights, tours.
0: Do you think that people spend enough time thinking about being kind?
5: Everybody has a good thing to do for somebody else. It's just sometimes we not feel like we want to be in touch with anybody else. But we can change and be better people, especially right now. Our war, need, or praise, and all, or love, or everything to be together, and this is a very special moment for us. So I'm very happy to be here, in Arizona Desert.
8: <laughs>
5: yeah, uh, my name is Madeline.
8: I'm 18 years old.
0: What is something that you can think of that relates to
8: kindness that you'd like to share? Just the difficulty to notice it in modern society, just because. We tend to focus on ourselves so much um, and in that we seem to forget the things that people do for others. Um, I was thinking about a, a David Foster Wallace speech he gave at a college called, uh, This is Water, in which he really details how the importance of like a liberal arts education is mostly that you are able to look outside of the situation around you and really see kindness for what it is and being able to distance yourself from like, the monotony of daily life and just experience reality for what it is.
0: You just heard the voices of some visitors at the Flowing Wells branch of the Pima County Public Library, which is expected to reopen in October with expanded services. In the meantime, the book bike and computer labs are available across the street at the Ellie Town Community Center. Listen for more stories about acts of kindness, large and small, in the coming weeks. You can also share your stories on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.
8: Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the
1: Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.